1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
0: Dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the Primal War, the of the world, you know the rules, you all know the game. Try to do what's right, and I swear I can't complain if I die tonight. But I don't think it's in the stars for me to go that way. I'll be here for a long, long time, babe. I'm here to stay. I was born to rock and roll, everything I need. I was born with the hammer down. I was built for speed. A few Motorhead lyrics there. Built for speed from the album Orgasmatron. Well, 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 this is Alan Averill. Welcome to Adjudated Anonymous, episode 137. Are you here to hear me complain about society for social commentary, all that kind of stuff? Well, let's pack it in for today and do a deep dive into something a little bit strange, a little bit different, um, which has its rock and roll, its heavy metal connection. I think you'll get to the end of this podcast and be unable to deny that there is a rather strong connection. The title of the podcast is provocative, but I mean, you got to play the game if you want to get eyes on the prize, if you want a few people to click on what you're talking about. But I don't see any other way of explaining what I'm about to talk about without saying those particular words. Nazis on speed. Yes, indeed. There's a little look, a little look back at... I suppose something which isn't really understood too well or hasn't been written about too much or that an awful lot of people don't really realize is that how much goddamn drugs um, were involved in almost every uh, aspect of war uh, over the last 150, 200 years. But specifically crystal methamphetamine, where it came from, a little bit of a history and how it was an essential part of World War II. You can follow me on emptyang underscore Primordial and Primordial underscore Official, both on Instagram. If you want some, um, you know, boring and ridiculous and mundane updates about my so-called life, then off you go. Or if you want to hear some stuff about Primordial, it's probably the best way to keep up to date on um, the shows that might get added, although there are none for quite a few months right now. I had some other things planned to talk about today, but I just felt so bogged down by the mundanity of this sort of pantomime of the sort of modern mainstream media stuff that we're constantly um, given. Do you really need my hot take about Balenciaga or Kanye or whatever? No, you don't really. Do I really need to add to the growing pile of uh, worthless opinions about all that kind of stuff, while it just feels like the whole thing is some grand pantomime and we just get served up our... Um, hot takes every day while we perhaps should be concentrating on other things. So let's go back a little bit in time and take a plunge into, as I said, something I planned for a while, but until today, it hit me like a bowl out of the blue. I was playing some Motorhead, of course, like I am often, and it just sort of hit me. It just sort of hit me. Uh, this episode is going to be about drugs, about speed, about amphetamine, to be precise. And the trail eventually will take us to Motorhead and Lemmy. So, do I need a better reason to do this one? Not really. I would say that link is enough in itself to make um, this particular episode of Adjutators Anonymous particularly worthy. But I remember someone making a few negative comments about me in particular, yours truly, the hostess with the leastest. They made some sort of negative comments about me mentioning uh, Speed in a tour report I did a couple of years ago. Um, The notoriously conservative heavy metal body politic was tut-tutting and wagging their finger at the mention, saying that I was condoning drugs, which of course I wasn't. Um, I wasn't condoning anything. I was merely discussing them in the context of being on a tour. Um, Anyone could see anyone could see that. But the odd irony being when you look back into how entwined German society has been with its pharmaceuticals for the last 120 or 130 years, kind of made me smirk a little bit that some heavy metal jobs worth would be upset at the mention. Seems kind of funny to me. Besides which, take away the music... Um, take away the music that's had various drugs as its backdrop, its backbone even and you certainly won't have rock and roll as we knew it from Johnny Cash to Elvis to our commander in chief, Lemmy they would not exist the same way and before we go any further yes, this podcast is going to be about um, amphetamine and in my opinion this is the drug which has the most practical application it actually does what it says on the tin and can sharp focus your day um, in a way that no other drug can. And so on tour, it's um, about the most practical thing that you can do when you're constantly tired and constantly chasing sleep. But of course, that opinion is um, an alleged opinion. A little bird apparently told me that's how it works. Anyway, 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 anyway. So to set the scene and remember these are, you know, these are my sort of my observations and views and they will kind of push the dial back and forth, and so I'm sort of talking off the top of my head here a little bit. But um, the Faustian Genesis, and I use that, um, that word Faust deliberately because that's when it was written in the early 1800s. But in a small German town, if I'm not incorrect, a man called Surtener, he distills the poppy seed and discovers opium. And he finds out that it's rather good for dealing with pain. Um, And by the mid-1800s, the opium industry, or rather, with the Germans at the helm playing, of course, a vital part, it's playing a vital part in the wars of this time. The powers that be um, have always wanted to find something to blunt the traumatic edge of going into war. At one time it was booze, filling their soldiers with gin, but being out of your head when you think about it is a pretty good way to deal with marching into a hail of bullets or a bayonet charge. So this man Wilhelm Sertner, as I remember his name correctly, um, he was the first um, man who was able to distil morphine um, down from this opium, from these poppy seeds, this dark brown resin um, that he found in poppies. Just to place it in some kind of context um, and its application, the the um, the hypodermic syringe was only invented in the 1850s. I suppose that's where it starts to become an easily, a more easily applicable. Um, solution to pain. And it comes in some ways to define war. If you can say the First World War was a morphine war, a morphinist um, creation, then the Second World War becomes the amphetamine war. But from about 1850, after you're able to apply morphine in this kind of easier way, um, it becomes the uh, the go-to drugs for dealing with pain, for dealing with... Um, at least in the context I'm talking about now, um, it's uh, really the early 1850s and the, on, onwards up until um, the end, I suppose, the 1900s, um, where morphine is the go-to for dealing with soldiers' injuries, uh, for dealing with pain in general. Our boy Surtiner has found a way to deal with pain, which seems quite incredible when you think about that, that he found it by, you know, by accident, by distilling down these poppy seeds. But here, they are, here we are. Opium in the mid-19th century is, um, is the go-to for pain relief. And who, what country is at the behest of this new pharmaceutical empire? Well, it's the Germans. And so in little under 100 years, in the year 1897, um, this fancy new drug, heroin, is being sold in Germany. It's a cough syrup for kids or a great way to get rid of a pesky headache. Um, And one thing you kind of have to consider, and I'm getting a little bit abstract here, um, is that the pursuit of empire, of colonies by the major powers, of which Germany was not one. Um, Germany was definitely left on the shelf, so to say. They were late to the empire game. Of course, they had a few here and there, but this is not a podcast about the evils of empire. Um, But... It's clear that Germany was um, late to this empire game. The main powers had been carving up the world for themselves already for 30, 40 years and um, Germany was not at at the table. Um, But of course, what they did bring to the party was pharmaceuticals, chemical compounds. They were the lads who put a bit of pep in your step. The First World War, as I said, was a kind of a morphine war. Um, And afterwards... After the Treaty of Versailles, um, Germany was in an incredibly distressed, impoverished place. They had been forced to accept all tenets of the war by the um, opposing powers. Um, And, and, you know, you've probably heard people say this. um, I heard quite a few people say this after the pandemic and lockdown. People said to me, oh, after the lockdown, it'll be like the 1920s Germany. It'll be like the Weimar Republic. Um, And I thought to myself, really? Is it really going to be like that? In the end, of course, we can see it's not like that because we just lurched from um, one catastrophe to another. Um, But what they meant by that was that after the First World War, the Weimar Republic, um, which I think is like 1918 to 1929, um, society fell into this super sort of decadent, indulgent phase. Um, And if we take Berlin, for example, it sort of fell into this decadent stupor. People were... Um, tired of, obviously tired of war and the repercussions of war, but the city was awash with drugs. They say on the streets of um, Berlin, almost on every street corner, almost every drug was available. Um, By the way, Another Perfect Day is a goddamn great Motorhead album. One of my favourite. Anyway, actually. As an aside, Lemmy did always say, take speed and not coke. Coke just makes you an arrogant fool, but speed gets the job done. But you certainly... You certainly um, could buy Coke. It said on the streets of uh, street corners in Berlin in the nineteen twenties, and it was polite to pass the Coke tin after a meal or a drink or two, Um, even in restaurants. I once was in a um, in a second hand shop i can 't remember it was it might have been in america i'm not sure where quite where it was, but they had an opium like a sort of injection kit which was favored by ladies so they could inject um, they could inject themselves underneath their petticoats while the men preferred their cocaine and Brandy. The women would uh, retreat into this other kind of, life, I suppose, antechamber room and literally just inject themselves with opium and bomb out. And then, you know, the men would be men would be on the uppers, women would be on some of the downers. <laughs> well, but certainly after uh, going out to eat somewhere in Berlin, it was seemed quite common for people to pass the coke tin to each other. There was no, um, there was no social real stigma to this, and. Needless to say, the um, the um, communist and both the fascist gangs were fighting on the streets, fighting for um, fighting for control over this Weimar Republic. They hated it. They both, I suppose, you could say, wanted to be the social drug and not have society on drugs. Amphetamine itself had been around a while. Um, its origins are be- are slightly contested. But it seems that um, it was invented in Germany by a Romanian chemist called Edelnau, um but it was not synthesized um, until 1927. But its properties were discovered in 1887, so it took almost, almost 40 years to um, to go to get to market, <laughs> as they would say. Um, and it was, and it was pretty much available everywhere. Um, and damn, wasn't it a hell of a drug? Um, it seems, oddly enough, mostly confined to the uh, German market, to the border, to the borders of Germany, but it was super popular in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s, uh, super popular and sold in all chemists. Um, you could go in and buy it just off the shelf as an anti-depression booster or, let's say, um, a pill, again, with a little pep in its step to help you cope with a post-war society to conquer fear, which will become even more important as we shift another decade ahead which is important to consider, I think, more popular. It was more popular in Germany than coffee at the time, which was um, pretty expensive, apparently, to import. There was a small pharmaceutical company called Temmler, um, and the... And, these small this small company grew and grew and grew from a smaller uh, operation to becoming a major pharmaceutical player. In fact, maybe the most, the biggest pharmaceutical player of the time. Um, apparently, and I haven't uh, been there, but I must see if I can go and find it the next time in Berlin. But their now ruined laboratory is empty, just on the outskirts of Berlin, and just hike yourself over a wall, and you can go in. Um, to their um, old ruined laboratories which have sat empty for 70 or 80 or 90 years. Well, maybe not 90 years, but quite a long time anyway. Um, they produced chocolate uh, with 13 milligrams of um, basically crystal meth per square and recommended at least two or three to get moving and up to nine if you wanted to go for the full lemmy. And um, Pervitan was the name. And Pervitan was being sold as a cure for um, all for everything. It was literally like a wonder drug. Um, and to say, according to uh, somebody, you know, according to experts, its purity would make a Walter White in this sort of Breaking Bad style cook situation weep. Its purity was so extreme. Um, and that's what they recommended. You know, maybe you're just going to have your morning. Well, you're not going to have morning coffee. Maybe you have your morning tea um, and you're on the balcony and you just go, well, God damn it, I feel like a five square uh, chocolate bar today, and you get out and you get to your business. I can't say it doesn't sound slightly appealing, considering I seem to spend so much of my um, of my. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com dot com have got sparkle
1: down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Modern 21st century life wanting to nap on the couch. However, anyway, the Nazis, ironically, as we will come to find out, um, they found it kind of went against their puritanical view of the world. Uh, where they were busy, uh, I suppose, trying to portray their leader um, as purer than pure. He did not drink, he didn't eat meat or touch women, and of course, not drugs. Um, And it was they, the Nazis in the mid-30s, who clamped down on its availability. But it didn't go away. didn't go away, you know. What's odd in reading about all of this um, is that, um, you know, in reading this and trying to sort of mangle it into some sort of podcast... Um, because I have so many kind of things to say about it and so many random thoughts all kind of um, whizzing around there trying to bring them down to earth. Did I just say the word whiz? <laughs> wow, I'm even better than I thought. Pun intended, my friends. Pun intended. What I was trying to say is this all seems to be a very oddly German, German phenomenon. It's quite strange indeed that this this wonder drug didn't really seem to travel beyond the borders of Germany. It's as if they hadn't quite realized its export potential. Um, I could be wrong with that, but I don't think you can read about this same um, pharmaceutical chemical process and growth in the 1920s and 30s happening in France or Italy or Spain. It seems to be very specific to Germany. Anyway, as the Nazis began to ramp up the rhetoric, the war rhetoric, the saber-rattling, um, and edge Europe closer to war, one army officer by the name of Renke, or Ranka seems to, um, once, once he's realized, like, literally, this is imminent, this is about to happen, he kind of seems to have put it together and figured out how important Pervotan, um, which is the methamphetamine, which is the crystal meth, um, how it could be potentially um, positive in a war effort, in a war setting. Uh, the old Prussian generals, who Hitler and the other top Nazis despised, it would seem, um, were against it, and they didn't really understand it. But as the Germans invaded Poland, their soldiers, tank commanders, um, especially people working, um, I suppose, in, within the tanks and, and at the front line, began to report back on the wunderbar effects of Pervitan with the soldiers who had taken it. And um, after that, the Nazis decided they issued what they called a stimulant decree it sounds incredible now but yeah a stimulant decree a part of history you don't really hear much about most people don't really know anything about but they handed out 35 million pervitin tablets to the soldiers um, sent to march through Holland and Belgium. Um, if you look it up on eBay, you can—I think—you can still find um, original capsules to buy. But they handed them out to soldiers as they were marching through Holland and Belgium on May the 10th. Um, blitzkrieg, bop, ladies and gentlemen—it's r- at the heart of this um, blitzkrieg. The, Alli- the allies, the allies had basically never seen anything like it. The tanks rolled on and on and on. And the soldiers never seemed to sleep. Some Allied generals um, were, of course, still wedded to the First World War or the 19th century methods of war. And that's, you know, not something uncommon for, um, I suppose, older generals who had served in the First World War um, who are now, um, you know, facing a completely different uh, methods of warfare. Um, But they've never quite seen anything like it. The quite literal speed of the German offensive took them completely by surprise. To say this was powered by amphetamine, um, meth is not too much of a stretch, at least um, uh, at least in my layman's way of looking back at it and reading about it. It seems it's not too much of a stretch to say that that Blitzkrieg was powered by pervitin itself and to what extent, I suppose is the question, um, was Hitler himself on drugs? The answer seems pretty clear. Um, by the end, his personal physician couldn't even find veins that were not collapsed to inject him with by the end in 1945, 1944, 1945. His name was Morel, um, an odd and curious man who kind of had been, I suppose, not a, quite erased from history, but it's hard, it was hard to find some details about him. But he's a curious man. Um, seems to mean a sort of avant-garde or ahead-of-his-time Physician, He met Hitler in 1936, cured him of stomach cramps with probiotics. I mean, probiotics is a a name or word that you use all the time now in the modern day. But in 1936, they were unheard of, um, for which Hitler called him a genius. And they developed a close day-to-day relationship. Strangely enough, the Allies excused him from Nuremberg as they concluded he was just Hitler's personal physician. However, from 1936 to 1941, it was mainly vitamins and various other things that he was pumping Hitler full of. But by 1941, things had started to change. Um, I've no doubt that Hitler was also taking pervatan and taking speed at this time. But it wasn't just speed. And um, the doses were upped and um, Hitler started taking hormones, all sorts of different things. I think you can, you know, it's it's well documented if you've seen Darkest Hour or whatever, that um, Churchill was taking a, quite a bit of cocaine. Um, and I think if you look at politicians, inside and outside of the kind of war era, and even to this day, we've all seen those... Um, photos of, you know, that famous photo of when Trump in his office or something and he'd left a, a drawer open and somebody zoomed in on the drawer to find um, loads and loads and loads of, um, you know, bottles of what would be called benzos or whatever, or uppers at least, so very, or stimulants. How else do politicians manage to do these, you know, three, four hours sleep um, and 20 hours on the go, 16 hours on the go on the campaign trail or plotting a war as the case may be? It seems that if you really think about it, you can't really divide politics and drugs. Anyway, so by 1943, according to uh, the diaries of uh, this man, Morrell, Hitler took his first opioid injection, um, a compound called oikodal. Pretty good name for a punk band, actually. Oikodal, Um, a heroin derivative that replicated euphoria as opposed to being a downer. Um, and, and Hitler came to so rely on this that he was being injected apparently every second day. Um, it's no wonder he had no veins left. It is said he took it before every big meeting, including the one where he convinced a war-weary Mussolini to stay in the war, rambling for three hours, allegedly. It's pretty clear that for the last four or five years of the war, Hitler became almost completely dependent on his physician's chemical mixture, a little like Elvis. It also seems to have been the chemical backbone for um, much of the sort of, uh, I suppose, the arguing, the charisma, the driving energy that made um, Hitler kind of sell completely untenable and losing positions to his generals when they knew what was happening on the ground, that defeat was almost inevitable. Um, And so this man morel seems to have had a very important part to play in the history of the 20th century that's almost been completely forgotten. Um, how meth escaped out into normal society is a bit more interesting. I mean, of course, it always was going to. Every drug kind of does eventually. Um, of course, it was available in German society, but Allied soldiers, of course, began to collect Pervotan capsules from German soldiers, captured German soldiers or shot down planes, pilots, that kind of thing, and analyze its content. Um, Benzedrine is what it became known in, in the US. Um, and if I'm not incorrect, was used by soldiers in Vietnam. And... Um, The German Navy, strangely enough, always portrayed itself as the kind of good guys. Um, But interestingly enough, they apparently tested various cocktails trying to find a compound that could make pilots of one-man subs Um, stay awake for a whole week. They were kind of like small little submarines uh, connected to one torpedo. And they found their way to the edge of the Thames in London and stuff. They were kind of sent on, I suppose it would be the equivalent to the um, Japanese um, suicide missions. Um, But they were trying to figure out a way of uh, making these poor young men stay up for one whole week. uh, A whole week. Never quite worked. Although... Reading Lemmy's autobiography, autobiography, he seems to have figured it out, so who knows. Um, and it just sort of then moved its way through society in so many strange and odd ways. It, it found its way onto the street after the war, again, um, with the Temler company still cooking it. But... Um, the debris women, as they were called, um, well, in English as a translation, which is another interesting and untold story. I think that's probably worth a book by somebody. Actually, it must be a book by somebody already. But this shattered and bombed society um, where the men had been sent off to die um, or had a dearth of men in their population, it was left to the women to clean up the cities. And most people kind of never thought about that or it's a, you know they never really think about that. But they found the energy in, you guessed it, Perviton. And Temmler was there uh, to, you know, help them sweep up the market, so to speak. And in fact, it was sold as the housewife's choice to get housework done in the 1950s. And it was a diet pill. You've probably seen those old ads, um, you know, aimed at um, housewives in the 1950s. I follow a few Instagram pages, which are just old advertisements and strange sort of things. And it's quite interesting to see what became... Um, illegal throughout the 20th century because of the West's various, um, I suppose, um, religious leanings, you know, things that were um, taken for granted in the late 19th century became outlawed, um, whether it's, you know, opium or hemp or whatever else. Um, I mean, most people put those things down to a religious changing in society, but I suppose Realistically, what you're also talking about is um, the, I suppose, the moral dilemma of um, governments um, wanting to have the tax revenue from these um, these illegal substances. And surely enough, if there was enough money in them, they would make them legal, as they're finally doing with weed all across the states right now. But there was that versus the moral outrage. But also I think that there's something in the idea that If you allowed, um, you know, if you if you made certain drugs legal, then you would give second and third world countries um, a huge economy, especially in, you know, sort of North Africa with hash and stuff, maybe South America with cocaine and all this kind of stuff. In that the first world, the West was controlling the drugs trade through, I suppose, military means or um, or through political means. But if they leveled the playing field and allowed the proper export and import of drugs, then you would give those countries, which they were trying to, um, you know, hold down and influence and control, you would give them another economy. So that's maybe a half-cooked, half-baked theory, but I think there might be something in it. But um, all its derivatives, all the derivatives of these compounds, we have still, you know, we of course still have today in um, it's in Red Bull. The principle is the same, really. Only a drink somehow has a less socially negative stereotype than a pill, which is crazy when you think about it. How anyone, if anyone's ever been in a room full of people on drugs compared to a room full of people uh, who are drunk, you will instantly want to be in the room full of people on drugs. Um, it's a place where you're far less likely to get your head kicked in. But we seem to have, a, of course, a negative stereotype, unless, of course, it's the, um, the opioids that Big Pharma wish to sell us. Anyway, at least that's how it seems to me. And these derivatives are still, you know, flooding uh, flooding our society and active within society. Why aren't there Red Bull pills? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe they lean too much into this mythology. But certainly the bass tone is similar. Um, I mean, of course, amphetamine is still around. It's still everywhere. Um, you know... It's Adderall in the United States. It's, um, you know, you can find all sorts of pills to varying degrees in different countries and that have different strengths or whatever. But, but as something that was once sold to housewives or sold to people as a sort of um, a silver bullet drug, a kind of cure-all drug, it seems very odd to me that it would still be kind of illegal. Um, it doesn't really make sense to me. As of all the drugs, allegedly, it's the one that gets the, um, gets the job done, does what it says on the tin. It's just about alert, um, being alert and being focused, uh, for good or for evil. So, were the Nazis on drugs? I think the answer is resoundingly yes. It explains a lot, from the relentless nature of the blitzkrieg to the megalomaniacal egotism and relentlessness of their ideology. It was certainly fueled by crystal meth, I think we could safely say. Anyway, my friends, that was Agitators Anonymous, episode 137, a breathless take on methamphetamine and its influence on um, the Second World War. Something I'd always kind of wanted to maybe do as a podcast to talk about a little bit. Um, And I've certainly done it justice by coming in under time uh, compared to the normal Friday podcasts, um, which, I don't know, leaves me enough time to go and listen to a little bit more Motorhead than I had been listening to before that. And that was the, that was the inspiration for today's podcast, was just sitting around looking at my Motorhead records going, oh, God damn, I wouldn't mind telling the story, of, um, the story of Amphetamine or where it came from. But then it sort of said, well, there's a sort of untold history there, an untold story of its influence on the Second World War. Um, And maybe I've told it badly, maybe I've done it some justice, but isn't it better than hearing my hot take on Kanye West and Balenciaga and whatever else and what all the other uh, mainstream things that I have no understanding of? My friend, Agitase Anonymous, born to lose, live to win. We'll see you next week.